Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're sharing news of positive footprints and purposeful travels with you for the next hour from our studios in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. First up on today's show, former NBC News correspondent and Middle East Bureau Chief Martin Fletcher, an author of a new book entitled Walking Israel, tells us why Israel is misunderstood and why after reading his book, you'll want to visit Israel for yourself. Then art and human rights in the African nation of Eritrea take center stage as we introduce you to artist and activist Elsa Gabriasis, who will tell us why she is hopeful for her home country and how her art and its message is fighting political oppression across an ocean. And finally, curator Bill Dreyer takes us inside the art of Ted Geisel. You know him as Dr. Seuss. Bill will tell us why Dr. Seuss was ahead of his time with his art and his commentary on everything from discrimination, the environment, and the state of the economy. Pretty surprising stuff from the man who gave us Cat in the Hat, Horton Hears a Who, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And as always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And uh, certainly we love connecting with you and chatting with you during the week. And we invite you to join any of our social networks from Facebook to Twitter, YouTube, and Stitcher, our mobile app that allows you to listen to us on the go from any mobile device. So join us for any of those things and also sign up for our newsletter at worldfootprints.com. In nearly four decades as a war correspondent, Martin Fletcher has seen terror and tragedy firsthand. The former NBC News bureau chief in Tel Aviv set out on a transformational tour in 2008 that took him on a two-week journey along the coast of Israel, walking on foot from Lebanon to Gaza. That journey became the basis for his book, Walking Israel, a personal search for the soul of a nation. A five-time Emmy Award winner for his excellence in covering conflicts in the Middle East, Rwanda, and Kosovo, Martin joins us today. Martin, welcome. Hi, Ian Tanya. What inspired you to take this journey through Israel by foot? Well, you know, I guess because I, you know, when you're a network correspondent, you see things at a speed of about 100 miles an hour. You know, everything is so quick, and you have to report so uh, in such a short time on what are such complicated issues. And I just wanted to slow down. And I love to walk, so I decided I would walk the coast and uh, look at Israel from a completely fresh perspective. What was the biggest surprise or surprises you encountered along this journey, this, this two-week journey? Well, my biggest surprise was my, see, my whole premise was that I was going to speak to people I'd never met before, uh, talk about issues I hadn't really discussed before, and then develop those issues you know, I, I, the journey took two weeks, but the, I, was, I was researching for another year afterwards. I guess the biggest surprise I found was that, for me, you know, being English, I really can't talk to people unless I'm introduced to them. So I, I, I found it really hard to speak to strangers, killing, killing the premise of the book. Um, but I guess, in the end, the biggest surprise, I think, was the Israeli Arabs who I met along the way. Because of Israel's population, one million are Israeli Arabs. That's about 20% of the population. And many of them live on the, in the north along the coast where I was walking, in Akko, Haifa, and the villages around there. And, you know, I always understood, of course, having worked in Israel since, essentially since 1973, uh, what their situation was. I was surprised to find how 
ultimately they believe that one day something will happen. That's the phrase they all, they all used. Something will happen by which they meant the Jews will go and we'll get our country back. I was surprised at the extent of that. The statement that you just made, it had an element almost of fear in it or something. I mean, what was your experience and what's kind of the, the common overriding feelings of, of those people that you met along the way? Well, I, I wouldn't say fear because at all, actually, because walking down the coast, you, you, uh, you see a different kind of Israel than the Israel that's portrayed in the media. And that's actually what I wanted to show and why I'd, why I'd had the idea for the book, because the world sees Israel from the point of view of a country in conflict with the Palestinians, in permanent conflict. And and that's what you see, in fact, through the media, because the media looks at Israel from a point of view of the, the green line, the wall, the fence that divides Israel from, from the West Bank. And to the east of that, which is where all the media coverage takes place, or most of it, that's where the occupation is, the, set, the Jewish art, this, the Israeli army, the fighting, the shooting, the killing. And that's the Israel the world sees. But if you move just a little bit to the right, to the west, the coast is only 30 miles from the green line. It's a tiny country. And if you walk down the coast the same north-south line, and then you look east, left, you see a different country. You know, 70% of Israelis live along the coastal plain, but you hardly ever hear about them in the, in the news, and that's what I wanted to show. Because in terms, you know, you mentioned the question of fear. People were always calling me, telephoning me, and asking, hey, Martin, is it safe to visit Israel? And I say, yeah, sure, of course, and they come. And a week later, they call me again, they say, wow, it's a great place, I had no idea. And that's what I wanted to write a book about, that great place about which people have no idea. Now you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, one of the challenges you faced was that you couldn't talk to people without being introduced first. <laughs> who, you're walking along the coast by yourself, so how did you, how did you uh, overcome that challenge and, uh, enough to write this book? Well, well exactly. You know, after three days of walking by myself, and uh, I was sleeping out most of the time on the beach, and I really had hardly spoken to anybody. I thought, I better start speaking to people or you won't have a book. <laughs> so I, after three days, I finally decided, okay, I'm going to force myself to approach this nice-looking family I met on the beach. But after three days sleeping out and walking in the, hot, in the hot sun, this took place in June, the walk, you know, I was smelly and unshaven and sweaty and dirty and shorts <laughs> and a backpack. And I approached this nice-looking family to talk to them. And they looked, took one look at me and grabbed their children and ran away. You know? <laughs> so I thought, oh, no. And I said, no, no, it's okay, I'm a, I'm a writer, you know, you know, gathering material for a book. Yeah, they thought, you're another, another freak on the beach, you know. <laughs> but then, I, I, you know, finally I did overcome that. And uh, actually, I grew quite a lot because I, now I can speak to anybody in a, in, a, in a bar, which was always the ambition in my life, but I never did it. It was a very revealing experience personally, and what I learned about the country took me to in directions I'd never really expected. I mean, personally, it was a great experience what I did. The story of Israel has been immersed in war, immersed in conflict, and a lot of the stories that we used to hear out of Israel were focused on terror in the cities, bombings and things like that. Today, we don't hear as much about that. What's the reality in terms of physical security in the country? Because it is an extraordinary country. It's got wonderful beaches, a booming economy that's built around high technology, and so there are a lot of things that sometimes the world doesn't necessarily hear about Israel through the coverage that has come out of the area for such a long time. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, for instance, National Geographic just published a, a list of the 10 best beach cities in the world, and next to Vancouver and San Francisco, they had Tel Aviv. Lon Lonely Planet in their guide 
just they, they just published a list of the ten best cit- best cities in overall in the world, and they put Tel Aviv number three. So I think that's a story that's largely unknown, you know, to to, to, to many travellers. You know, the the emphasis on the conflict in Israel obviously is the correct emphasis because, of course, that's Israel's main story: it's conflict with the Palestinians. But it's only part of the story. And as you said in the question, there's another story about Israel, which is of this wonderful uh, country. That, um, that frankly is a pleasure to visit. As a matter of fact, it's so small you can see the whole place in ten days. You know, Tel Aviv, for instance, there has not in, in, uh, there, there hasn't been a suicide bomb in any of Israel, for instance, for the last two years. Netanya, which used to suffer tremendously, is completely safe now. Uh, after the Israel built the wall and the fence, which is such a controversial barrier, but nevertheless, it succeeded in bringing uh, in, in stopping terrorism inside Israel. Tel Aviv is perfectly safe now. Having said that, you know, there's, Israel always has these periods of, of great tension. You know where you really wouldn't want to visit, but unless there's actually a war going on, as there was with Hamas uh, in 2008 or with Hezbollah in South Lebanon in 2006, you know, apart from those periods, it's a perfectly safe place to visit. But having said that, you know, it can change on a dime. Walking Israel is certainly going to have much interest and, and much appeal to many, whether Jews, Muslims. Who are you trying to reach, and who do you think? would want to be interested in reading your uh, personal journey? My mother. <laughs> <laughs> good answer, good answer. <laughs> but uh, I, I would add Christians to your list because there's a tremendous interest in, among Christians in, in, the, in the Holy Land, a huge interest. In fact, when Israel is, under, is in, experiencing those periods of tension that I, that, I, that I just mentioned, you know, many of the regular tourists to Israel don't come, but the Christian groups come regardless. A huge interest. In the, in the strangest situation, I've been in a situation in Bethlehem, for instance, when there was shooting and, and uh, um, rubber bullets, not live ammunition, rubber bullets, throwing stones, fires, and it all stopped as three busloads of Christian tourists weaved their way through all the barricades, and then it resumed after they, after they passed through on the way to Bethlehem. You know, so Christians, are, you know, I think, are a very large part of the audience. But basically anybody interested in, in Israel and the Holy Land, I think, and also in international affairs, because you know, my point in the book was that Israel, I really do believe, does get a raw deal in the media because we focus on the conflict. Um, and I was trying to show that it's a much nicer kind of place than one portrayed in the media. So I, I, I hope, my, my personal hope is that, is that the book goes way beyond the Jewish audience to people who may not even like the country. The book is also about, I hope, an argument in favor of, of saying, look at this place and give it a fair chance. By the way, it's, it's not a whitewash at all. Deal with, you know, with many of the problems of Israel, but I'm just trying to say... You know, there's good points, too, and great points. Certainly when you're sleeping alone on a beach and, uh, <laughs> and you're a little bit unshaven, you come out of your, your shell and begin talking to people. Talk about your transformation as you, as you travel the coast. Yeah, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't think I, I, don't think I really did change much. <laughs> it, it, it's just I learned a lot more about the country. That I, you know, I, I've been reporting from there since 1973, and I've lived there since 1982. So I thought I knew the country very well. But each, town, each community I went through, I met different people, and then I, um, different issues came up, and then I researched those issues for a year afterwards. And each, each issue I, I researched took me into an area that I hadn't expected. And where they went all, you know, they went all, all painting Israel in a good light either. I mean, for instance, I went through one kibbutz, which was called Survivors of the Ghetto Kibbutz, Lochamia Ghettoot. And there I, I, I've met the uh, survivors of the, from the Holocaust who'd helped found that kibbutz. Now that I researched that story, I found out, which I hadn't realized, realized before, not to this extent, that when the Jewish survivors of the concentration camps arrived on the shores of Palestine in 1945, 46, 47, you know, finally into the arms of, the, of their 
of their Jewish brethren, they were basically not welcomed well at all. They were kept at arm's length, and I, and I analyzed, showed why that happened and, and how it changed. Well, there was also the issue with the young, young men and women who were training to go into the elite units of the Israeli army. And so I was talking, talking to them about their motivation these days to serve in the army. You know, after all, this is a country where every man or woman is supposed to go into the army, and if they're in combat, they're now doing probably two months reserve duty a year until the age of 40, 45. It's a tremendous commitment. Can you imagine, you know, if people, if that was, if, that was, if every person in America had to serve three years in the army for a man, two for a woman, and then be on reserve duty up to two months a year of your life, you know, what a commitment. So I really wanted to, uh, to investigate to what extent is that still um, acceptable today. Again, it took me to different directions I hadn't expected. A number of young Israelis are not really interested in committing their time to the armed forces. Yeah, well, the defense minister, Ed Barak, said a couple of years ago that the army today is the army of only half the nation. And he said that because only half the boys and girls of that age actually go into the army. If you include Israeli Arabs who don't need to serve, ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't need to serve, and then all of those who, for different way, different reasons, uh, don't serve. Uh, so, so, yeah, so that was a, that was, that was a major issue, and the one, that I, the one that I examined in the book. One of the surprises that comes out of the book is the affinity that many Israeli Arabs feel for Israel. And I'm sure to outsiders this may seem contradictory based on what we see and hear. What do you think the rest of the world really needs to understand about some of the interrelationships between Arabs and Jews within the country? Well, I met, for instance, one, I spent a lot of time with Israeli. I was more than I expected to because they said that so many of them do live along the coast. And I met one guy, Abdu, who was, a, who was a tour guide in Akko, beautiful town in the old city of Akko. And he was showing the clock tower to, to a group of, of Israeli Jewish tourists. And he said, look up at the clock tower. It's a four-sided clock tower. So he said, what do you see? And the, one of the Israeli Jews looked up and said, oh, the numbers of the clock are in Arabic numerals. Why is that? And he got very upset and hot under the collar, saying, no, this is Israel. It should be Jewish numbers up there, hmm. uh, Hebrew numbers. And the Arabs put his arm on his shoulder and said, come with me. And he t- took him to the second side, and there the numbers were in Hebrew numerals. And then mm. he took him around the back, and it was in English, and the fourth side was in Indian. He put his hand on his shoulder again. He said, you see, it's all showing the same time. It all shows the same truth. It just depends where you stand, <laughs> which I thought was a sort of a you know, hokey line. And later on he told me, in fact, it's a lousy clock, and the time's always different, and they have to set it straight twice a day. But uh. his, point, his, his point that he was trying to make was that you know, Jews and Arabs are looking at the same truth, but from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And it is possible to look at the same uh, set of events and agree on things. And, and I think that, that that was a critical story for me, because, first of all, it was the Israeli Arab pointing out to the, to the Israeli Jews that very important uh, idea. And secondly, it showed that there's, there really is a lot of communication between Jews and Arabs in Israel, and can be in the future. Because of the centuries-old conflict in that region, and given what you just said and, and, and the stories that you uncovered, is there, in your mind, any hope at all for a true resolution or a true peace solution will take place? But frankly, um, one reason I stayed there for so long is I always believed the next peace process would work and end in peace. And I've been wrong for 35 years, so I'm not the one to predict. But I, I don't see a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians in the near future or the medium-term future, even actually looking forward uh, for, some way, for some distance, because there's a, just a terrible lack of leadership on both sides. I am convinced that if there was a peace agreement on the table, that two-thirds of, Israeli, of Israelis and two-thirds of Palestinians would sign it 
without even reading it. They just had enough of the conflict. But the leaders, leaders are just not taking them to, uh, to that place. One of the problems. And the other problem, certainly for Israel, is that even if there was a peace agreement, it probably would not be the end of the conflict because the Arabs definitely want to take over, ultimately, if they could, all of Israel. I have no doubt about that at all. But I, I still think they need to make peace and then try to manage that conflict in the future. This isn't the first walk you've taken. In 1980, you walked from Pakistan into Afghanistan to report on the Soviet invasion. And that was a, a different experience for a really different purpose. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, you can say that again. That was a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that again. Uh, well, well, the Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan, and I went over to Pakistan to find the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviets, and um, when I joined a group and we walked over the Hindu Kush mountains, which was definitely the hardest thing I'd ever done. We were walking for three straight weeks. And these guys who live in those mountains, the Pashtun uh, tribesmen who live in the mountains, by the way, they became today's Taliban. You know, they were like, I mean, I can't, they were like running up the mountain. And I was sort of behind them going, please wait for me, you know. <laughs> and um, it was terribly hard. And I went by myself because um, I was, at that point I was working with what we used to call a one-man band. So it was just, I was the only journalist with them. Um, it was extremely hard, and it was quite dangerous, and it was quite scary. And in the end, they robbed me of my money, too. <laughs> oh. But I, but I got out, but I got out okay. Martin, your career has taken you all over, and you've been in South Africa. You were based in Johannesburg. You've been based in Europe. Do you have a sense of hope and optimism about the capacity of leaders and people to resolve some of these great conflicts? I do not have confidence in the leaders, although sometimes they do stumble into the right decisions. Uh, but I have great hope and, and confidence, and that's what's always kept me going. And one reason I love this job so much, in the people themselves. You know, when you, as I have done, you know, see people who have, you know, families starving in, Sud in Sudan or Ethiopia, uh, Somalia, or all these different places I've been on, Kosovo, the different issues that people, you know, terrible crises that people face. And bear in mind that when I turn up as a journalist into, into the lives of these people, I'm normally turning up on probably the worst day of their life, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, that's very wearing for the journalist. On the other hand, the way people, what I've learned is the way people bounce back and just accept, mostly because they have no choice, but just get on with their lives and make the best of their terrible circumstances, you know, it's so heartwarming and encouraging and stimulating that I've always wanted to, you know, I just, you know, you just want to help these people by telling their story. And that's really what's guided me, actually. Your book, Walking Israel, has received a ton of praise from people like Tom Brokaw, Brian Williams, Anderson Cooper, David Gregory, and of course the World Footprints team uh, now. But <laughs> what, is the, what is the one thing that you want readers to take away from the experience of reading Walking Israel? Go there. I'd say, you know what? Go there. It's a great place. Enjoy it. Um, don't diminish the problems it faces, but understand that there's a lot more there than the, than the, than the media story of conflict, which, as I say, is the real story, but it's not the only story. You know, it's so small. The coast of Israel is only 110 miles long, but I think it has to be the most interesting 100 miles in the world. You know, it's the length of Long Island, but when you think that of the events, the Bible, Alexander the Great, the Crusaders, Saladin, the Ottomans, Napoleon, and Israel today. All those things in that tiny place, what a, you know, what a country. Martin Fletcher, the 
the author of Walking Israel. We thank you for being with us today on World Footprints. Ian Tanya, thank you very much. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, artist and activist Elsa Gabriese shares the promise and pain of Africa through her art. So alongside that beauty, there is all this um, pain and difficulty in that continent. And I didn't think that a show just uh, celebrating the beauty of Africa was enough, was true to me. I really wanted to have another aspect of it. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Marcia Alexion, and I'm talking to you from Vancouver right now. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. I've been living in Vancouver for about 20 years, and I love World Footprints Radio. You're gonna fly. Hi, everyone. This is Reba McIntyre for RAD. You know, I see a lot of funny things traveling all over this beautiful country of ours, but one thing that's not very funny is when someone gets in a car trying to drive when they're drunk. Take their keys away from them, because friends don't let friends drive drunk. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Growing up in poverty taught me how to be determined, how to be goal-oriented. Ray Wright, youth mentor. I work with young people every day, and young people have almost lost faith in the world surrounding them. I'm that ray of sunshine telling them we haven't been forsaken. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service on this station. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I live in the South. California is my home. I speak fluent Spanish. No hablo espanol. I have brown eyes. My eyes are blue. We're very different people, but we do have something in common. I made a donation to the Red Cross. When disaster struck and I needed help, her gift to the American Red Cross changed my life. When you support the American Red Cross, you change a life, starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org and find out about life-changing opportunities in your area. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. Hi, my name is Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Artist and activist Elsa Gabrielsas made her solo debut recently at Baltimore's Gallery Mertice with her show, Africa, The Primal Source. 
Elsa, from the small African nation of Eritrea, a country that was once part of Ethiopia, has a remarkable journey and message to share with the world. We were there for Elsa's solo debut, and we think that you will find what she has to say about the struggle for free speech and human rights in Eritrea, and how she is using her art as a platform to put a spotlight on a country few know about pretty compelling. But first, to appreciate Elsa's journey, you need to know about Eritrea, as Elsa tells us in her own words. Eritrea was colonized by the Italians. And so most Eritreans assumed that after the Italians left, that it would be an independent nation. But that never happened because Ethiopia did not want to be blocked off from the sea. And at that time, it was one of the more powerful nations in in Africa, and they demanded that they annex Eritrea. And that was what actually sparked the, the struggle for independence for the country. And it took 30 years uh, of a war uh, to, to get Eritrea independence. And that created a real strong national sentiment. And uh, so I had never actually been to Eritrea because from the time I was born, the war was going on. And I went back in 92. Right, you know, they had the, the war had been over, but they hadn't done the official vote to become an uh, independent country. It was uh, newly independent in 1993 from Ethiopia. So at that time, there was a lot of promise to be, uh, you know, to build this nation from scratch. And uh, in the first few years, there was not, you know, the, the direction of the country was not really known. And now, uh, several years later, it has become one of the most repressive um, governments. It's, you know, there are positive aspects as well, but a lot of it is um, there are a lot of human rights issues that go on in the country. As you listen to Elsa, you can begin to appreciate what inspired her to do this show, Africa, the primal source, and why she wanted to focus on Eritrea in particular. I really wanted to do something very personal uh, to me and uh, something that really expresses my journey as a, a woman, as an artist, as a person from Africa, from, in particular from Eritrea. Um, I had gone back and lived in Eritrea for five years after living here in the West, and it's been some time since I had gone back to Africa, and I went back last summer. And just the sounds and the smells, the just the visual stimulation from being there really inspired me for this show. And there is so much beauty and uh, just, you know, Africa is a huge continent full of just promise and it's so rich in culture and di- very diverse. And I really wanted to celebrate that aspect of Africa in this show. Uh, at the same time, being from Eritrea and also having, you know, experiences in other African countries. Uh, Africa is also a continent that is just constantly in flux, uh, that is constantly um, growing in leaps and bounds. Countries are developing in leaps and bounds. At the same time, they're struggling with a lot of poverty, with a lot of human rights issues, with uh, war, uh, genocide, a lot of devastation. So alongside that beauty, there is all this... um, 
pain and difficulty in that continent. And I didn't think that a show just uh, celebrating the beauty of Africa was enough, was true to me. I really wanted to have another aspect of it and use it as a platform to educate and, and uh, sort of raise awareness about some of the issues and in particular the issues in Eritrea. Some of the human rights violations Elsa speaks of have silenced the country's once free press as the journalists have been imprisoned. They are still in jail. There, there have been no official charges except for uh, that they threatened national security. No lawyers, no, no nothing. There is a constitution that does not allow that kind of uh, imprisonment or detention but it's, it's just a piece of paper, it's not implemented. As an activist and artist, Elsa's art gives voice to those who have heard their voices silenced in Eritrea, like the newspapers of the imprisoned journalists which she incorporates in her art. A lot of these pieces, the newspapers actually uh, became, they were not, there were just a few of them when I left. These came out even after I left. Basically between 98 and 2001 is when these newspapers were uh, in existence in Eritrea. This one is called Asmara Today. It's like, you know, a little newspaper. And these are the actual, uh, you know, copies of them. But uh, I got, there were some journalists that managed to escape uh, and are here now. Mm -hmm. And through their contacts, they gave, they brought me these copies of these newspapers. These were the these were this was one of the newspapers that was shut down, and uh, the editor of these uh, newspapers are in jail. So some of these pieces, the text that you see, are the actual newspapers that were ex in existence at that time. They don't exist anymore mm -hmm. at that time. Wow. And some of them, you know, it has same thing. This one is. Uh, Wintana. The Wintana was the other newspaper. It means our wish, our hope. It has sections of it like our there's horoscope, there's classified. So it's just like a normal newspaper. newspaper. Yeah. And these were young journalists, young young editors, you know, uh, trying to start a career uh, in you know in the newspaper industry. Mm -hmm. And it had a great circulation. It had better circulation, of course, than the government paper, and that was a threat. Whether because of national pride, politics, or both, there are sharp divisions, even among Eritrean expatriates, over the kind of activism Elsa expresses in her art. Because of fear and repression of family and friends back home, few speak out. The community is very divided. There are some parts of the community that do not like uh, discussing these issues about Eritrea, that you cannot afford to discuss anything negative about the country. Um, it, that it has, yes, problems, but really it's on the right track, and for some reason, uh, the fact that there are people who are imprisoned without rule of law is somehow just, you know, put aside, it's not addressed, it's not... Uh, you know, it's not personal for a lot of people, and uh, it ha it's happening to the other. There must have been something done, or maybe they did something wrong. And uh, I think people forget that there are processes. And of course, if you do speak out, there are repercussions. Either you cannot go back, it's not safe for you to go back, you could potentially be put in jail. Uh, the paintings like this would be considered subversive. This is something that... Mm -hmm. 
is you're doing something against the government at this point until some change happens. I would not be comfortable going back. In spite of the pain, Elsa reminds us of the promise of Africa and its primacy in humankind, which she cherishes and uses to inspire her art as well. And she draws on Eritrea's ancient languages, Fidel and Tigrinya, for inspiration too. It is, uh, I mean, Africa is the birthplace of life, right? It's the beginning. It's where the earliest human remains have been found. It's, in, all, in essence, we are all African, wherever we're from, whatever color we are, whatever whatever we are, you know, wherever we're from, we're all connected. And we come from that place, we come from that continent. Our origins are there. And uh, that's behind what the, the subtitle, the primal source, that is the source of so many things. Uh, of course, it's more, uh, some of the pieces are very uh, Eritrea or Ethiopia specific because of co- that is what is where I'm from. But I, I did want to focus on there. I mean, it has such a rich history, uh, and there is not enough information about that here in the West. Um, Eritrea and Ethiopia are just, the language itself is, to me, because I, I came to it much older, and also from an outside view, although I am from there. Um, the language is, is, is like uh, the symbols, the letters, the alphabet itself. You know, it has like an Latin origin, and then there are two languages that are derived from there. Um, the it's a the way the language is structured. Uh, it's a celebration of the cultural richness uh, of Africa, and it's just small. There is so much more in that continent, but it is um, you know some of the pieces that I started with. You know that they, they talk about having beginnings, and then. Uh, the primal source of things and going into part of Egypt, Mm -hmm. the source of language, of communication, of so much, of astronomy, of there, there's so much in that continent and uh, so the symbols in the language as well, for me I thought uh, are are just beautiful to look at, let alone what the actual meaning. One way Elsa connects her art to Eritrea is through the powerful symbolism and shapes in Eritrean clothing and culture. You know, a lot of the shapes and symbols that I use, the triangles, these are shapes that are repeated often in almost all cloth in Africa, in patterns of uh, the doors, in the carvings, um, the, the... there is a lot of celebration of the language in here again. The symbols as a celebration, they don't have any particular meaning, but the shapes and the colors that language originated. The colors are just uh, sort of something like a, a, something gesticulating, something beginning, something growing. And out of, the, you know, and there's so much beauty, there's some Egyptian symbols in there. And I did throw in some vuvuzelas because it was so funny during the World Cup to hear this, you know, background noise of these instruments that are used in very traditional ceremonies and celebrations and weddings in Africa. And, uh, you know, it's just turning everybody's head, you know, because it's mm-hmm. partly noisy and not, not a, people not, not understanding what that is about. But I thought it was beautiful. And I, you know, I really wanted to throw it 
in there, that there are, you know, in our musical instruments are, are different. Uh, and not enough people know about them, you know. One of her works, Desert Dreams, captures the beauty of the water and the desert, and it also captures the vibrancy of them in this work. Again, this, uh, this one was really inspired by the colors, you know. Um, Eritrea is also by the ocean. We have a real uh, affinity to the, to the ocean, to the water. The desert, the, the, the heat, you know, this piece really speaks to, to how I feel sometimes there. When you're there, it's very hot, it's dry, it's deserty. Um, but it's, it's vibrant because of that as well, you know. And uh, the beads are in there because we use a lot of beadwork as well. And uh, the, so, you know, the patterns of... The, the circles could be, it represents so many different things. Uh, the skin on, on, on cheetahs and leopards, and, and uh, the, especially cheetahs, I would say. And, and circles are also a really prominent part of our pattern in, 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 in our traditional clothing, um, in jewelry, uh, many things like that. And in her work, Mystic Journey, Elsa celebrates all that is Africa, as she tells us here. And it's the same thing. It's similar. Uh, I really wanted these pieces also to have a theme, uh, the, the unifying visual theme. Uh, the pattern is, you know, on the bottom of the, the canvases. And in our traditional clothing, all the pattern work is on the bottom. Uh, so I wanted that to also reflect in the pieces, in the paintings. Um, the colors again. These are very. These are very much the colors of the land, of the of the soil. There is that reddish soil in our in our in Africa, in Kenya. When I was growing up, the sun, the heat, um, the colors in in our in our food, the spices. These are colors that are just very much ingrained in our in our lives. So, and again, I really wanted to celebrate the shapes. There's Egyptian shapes in there, the language, the patterns, and I just want, you know, the, the, to celebrate it all that. Through the pain and the promise Elsa reflects in her art and advocacy, Elsa has a hope that the promise of Africa and Eritrea will be realized. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's part of why I wanted to do the celebratory aspect of Africa. It's not all bad. You know, so there are, there's lots of beauty and there's lots of, uh, you know, there are some, there is hope, there's always hope. There's always hope because there's hope in the past. Nobody thought there would be an independent nation. And now it seems dark because we don't feel like there's going to be democracy. But, you know, it happened. Independence came. And democracy will happen. It may not happen in our lifetime. It may not happen, but there's always a future. There's always hope. And I don't think, I don't know if that's just as human nature that we have. We're wired to feel like there's always hope in the future. Uh, I believe my art will reflect that as well. You know, um, I, I reason of, you know, in the paintings, even the colors, there's always, there's a as much darkness and turmoil as there is in the pieces, there's always light areas in those pieces because I really feel that also speaks to the light, to for, for hope. There is a future. There is there are people. Them sitting in that jail is a sign of that. There are people who are uh, creating, you know, internet sites 
and uh, for to provide information for the Eritreans, and uh, you know that is not controlled by the government. That's you know those are people. Me doing a show, it's not connected to any political organization or nothing. It's just individuals doing different things. Those things exist. And eventually all those small little steps will, will make up a, a larger um, you know, effect, will have an effect. After the break, our curator, Bill Dreyer, takes us into the world of Dr. Seuss for some new insights from the life of one of the most beloved children's authors. He's not thinking he's going to be the world's best-known children's book author. This is written before that. But it's exactly as you'd expect in a children's book, that rhyming scheme that... Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Elaine, and I'm from California, and I like World Footprints Radio. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s, and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service in this station. Tom Gilmore lives on a farm. There's a storm on the way, so he's boarding up the windows of his house. Haley Williams lives in an apartment. It's a beautiful day. She's making her usual monthly donation to the American Red Cross. Tom doesn't know a tornado will leave his family with no place to go. Haley doesn't know her gift will help give Tom's family shelter. When you support the Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org to learn about life-changing opportunities in your area. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, this is Paul McCartney on behalf of Rad. If you're drinking, you can't drive my car or any car. And remember, don't drink and drive. It's just not worth it. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. What if you didn't care about being on the fast track? Instead of flying to the big interview, what if you flew somewhere else altogether, like a village in Botswana or a tiny island in the Pacific where needs are easy to see? What if you decided to share your skills with others and help someone else get ahead? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. Hi, I'm Patricia Elsie from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian, <laughs> and they love our cooking. She got a shrimp creole, he got a breakfast special with scrambled eggs with cheese, and Ian got the scrambled breakfast with sausage and hot sausage, and they're really enjoying the food. And I love them, and I hope they come back again. 
You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. During the holiday season, Washington, D.C. takes on a special feeling. This year, the Gaylord National Resort at National Harbor, just outside the Capitol, has a special holiday celebration with a remarkable storybook ice sculpture show that brings to life the Dr. Seuss classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Which, of course, is one of my favorite Christmas stories in the world, and I think because the Grinch reflects a change of heart. He reflects a transformation, which is expressed in the book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light, and he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. With the help of Bill Dreyer, the curator of the Art of Dr. Seuss, we were given behind-the-scenes access to a retrospective exhibit on the life of Dr. Seuss, Ted Geisel, from his art and his poetry. One of the world's greatest children's artists was a keen social commentator and had a peculiar sense of humor that was reflected in his art and rhyming poetry, as Bill shared as we toured the exhibit of his secret art as it was being set up at the Gaylord. You'll have to pardon our dust a bit with the construction clamor in the background of some of our audio, as Bill tells us why Ted Geisel loved cats. This is the Ted Geisel you may not have been aware of. It certainly looks like something you might expect from Dr. Seuss but you certainly haven't seen this imagery, and this is called Cat from the Wrong Side of the Tracks. And it's a cat in a pool hall smoking a cigarette um, with a girly cat, a nudie cat, on his tie. He's the bad cat. I mean, he really is Cat from the Wrong Side of the Tracks. And, of course, Ted Geisel smokes cigarettes, so he kind of, it's almost a a self-portrait in a way, or an alter ego for certain. Um, And when you think about uh, Seuss's paintings and his illustrations, any of the work he did, sure. Any of the illustrations or works he did in his children's books, there's all many different levels of meaning and a lot going on, and that's true in his paintings as well. Because if this cat is bad, and if cats have nine lives, the score in his life is eight, and he's down to his last life. Oh, that's great. So that's how bad a cat he is. <laughs> so. And then this cat here is this is Joseph Katz and his coat of many colors right from the Bible story. So uh, he takes inspiration from all around uh, the, uh, the country and uh, pop culture and what's going on in society. What was his true feeling about cats? Was he a cat lover or not? <laughs> That's a great question. Ted Geisel had a couple different responses from that, but let me just preface this answer with um, what I love about Ted Geisel is that you never knew if he was telling you the truth or making up a story and oftentimes he made stories up that reporters reported and then that became the lore or the legend and that's how some of these legends began Ted said two things he said that he couldn't paint dogs so he painted cats he um, was also asked uh, oftentimes, you know, where do you get your ideas? I get my ideas from Uberglitch. It's a town in Sweden where I go to get my cuckoo clock fixed every year. And while it's being fixed, I walk around the town and I talk to the people and they give me my ideas for my books. So you never, obviously not true, but he loved to tell these stories. The other real reason, to, the real answer to your question is that his wife, Helen, and he had cats 
more Helen than him, they had up to 23 cats at one time in their early married life. I think Helen may have taken in every cat in the neighborhood and they had up to 23 cats. And so cats were a big influence because he was around so many cats at that time. Also, um, um, Harriman is the author of a, uh, a, a cartoon called Crazy Cat, which was uh, in the early 20th century when Ted Geisel was reading in 1906, 1907, 1910, Crazy Cat was the big cartoon, and I think that was an influence on Dr. Seuss's cartooning himself. So I've never heard Ted Geisel say that, but if you look back historically and research it, I believe that that's an influence, and I think the 23 cats that they had were influences. Did any of Ted's travels influence his art at all? I mean, I'm just looking at Wisdom of the Orient Cat. Did that come from a, or was that influenced by a travel experience? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, he traveled to 30 different countries by the age of 30 years old. Venice, Italy was one of his favorite places, and there are uh, several paintings um, uh, on Venice. Uh, one is called Venetian Cat singing O, o Solo Miao. And uh, one is called Cat Carnival in West Venice. Uh, so s absolutely, his travels did influence his paintings, his artworks. And I feel that Seuss is really a, um, a, a social commentator. And in essence, he's showing us through his artworks and his books, how he views the world, what he sees, and in many cases, it's almost a mirror looking back at us. He never says, this is who you are, this is what we're doing, but he kind of shows us who we are, and we get it through his soft humor and, and innate wit that, oh, that's me. You're talking about me, you know, when many of these artworks, and we actually get to look at ourselves a little bit differently. His travels certainly influenced that and uh, loved to travel throughout his life. Though beloved as a children's author, Ted Geisel's adult humor really comes through, particularly in his series about the La Jolla Beard women, where Ted pokes fun at California socialites, as Bill explains. I mentioned his uh, adult humor. This is one of my favorites here. A woman in a coffin talking on the phone, and then he tells us oh, I'd, what she's saying, and she's saying, oh, I'd love to go to the party, but I'm absolutely dead. That is one of the La Jolla Bird Women series because no woman in La Jolla would miss the party unless they were dead. There were some partiers over there. And then one of my favorites down here, this is where he's making good-natured fun of California socialites. And here is a woman in negligee drinking a martini, uh, as if every woman in La Jolla wakes up in the morning, walks around in a negligee with a martini in one hand and a teddy bear in another hand. And then his wink-wink, nudge-nudge adult humor is in there because underneath that negligee, is a not very sexy lederhosen type contraption with these long socks almost referencing the cat in the hat hat red and white stovepipe hat look there so i love how he always incorporates a little bit of a twist or another depth of layer of understanding there uh, very very great watercolor work of his did you really in La Jolla? Yeah. Well, I mean, if and there's only 11 known paintings from the La Jolla Birdwoman series. This is another one. This is called Raising Money for the Arts. And so certainly, all the women in La Jolla here they are at their lunch rooms and lunch luncheon balls and you know just uh, the big hats, all the dress, and out there just being seen and 
and uh, doing the good work of raising money for the arts. So we, uh, uh, there he is actually <laughs> depicting what was going on in town. In Prayer for a Child, we see the serious side of Dr. Seuss portrayed in words and art. As Bill tells us, there was always a deeper message in many of Ted's poems and art that made him one of our most profound social commentators. This is a, uh, this is a really special artwork that... Um, we really only became aware of a couple of years ago and found the um, the private collector who it was given to his mother. We've passed it down to him. And it's called Prayer for a Child, is the name of the artwork. And Seuss actually had a poem that goes with this. Uh, from here on earth, from my small place, I ask of you, way out in space, please tell all men in every land what you and I both understand. Please tell all men that peace is good. That's all that need be understood. In every world, in your great sky we understand both you and I that's as close as he gets to religion and I think he did a brilliant job of putting that sentiment into this artwork I believe it was about 1971 when it was gifted so it would have been created sometime before that or shortly before that I don't know Ted Geisel's political art touched on the issues of racial equality, the environment, and the economy with an eye to rejecting the status quo. Even though he is recognized as one of the most influential children's authors of the 20th century, Ted wasn't thinking he would become one of the world's most beloved children's authors when he created his art and poetry, as Bill reminds us. Here's a, a poem that he did for one of his friends called How Was I to Know? Just one thing more, I asked God point blank as I was about to be born. Do I or don't I tip the obstetrician? But his first poem I think is really interesting. Mrs. Van Bleck of the Newport Van Blecks is so gosh darn rich she has gold-plated sex. Whereas Miggles and Mitzi and Bitsy and Sue have the commonplace thing and it just has to do. He's not thinking he's going to be the world's best-known children's book author. This is written before that. But it's exactly as you'd expect in his children's book, that rhyming scheme, that wordplay, that rhythm pattern that he has. His humor, his adult humor, is ingenious. It's really wonderful, and I think that's a great example of it. This applies as much today as it did in World War II. This naked woman with the term skepticism on her, on, written on her, and then faith. And merely into the post-war world as we go march in to clean it up. Really interesting how that's kind of where we are now. Half of us with skepticism, half of us with faith, but faith that we can go in and clean up the mess out there. So really um, interesting foresight that he's able to bring to the topics in 1941, which we're also facing in 2010. Between 1941 and 1943, he actually created more than 400 editorial cartoons, and those were uh, run in PM, the daily, daily newspaper PM. And we highlight a number of those images. This is an interesting thing right here. You've got, you know, Uncle Sam with a flint bug spray, a little sprayer right there. Line up the American public and spraying through our head with the racial prejudice bug pops out. And the guy said, the title is, What This Country Needs is a Good Mental Insecticide. And this guy's saying, Gracious, was that in my head? And Seuss is one of the first people in the 1940s to actually stand up and say that um, it's not correct to not hire Jewish 
or Negro labor, as it was termed at the time. The discriminating employer, of course, was not hiring uh, different ethnicities, and Seuss is one of the first to stand up in the media and say, that's not right. Those concepts about how it was you know, injustice and intolerance was going on back then it evolved into his children's book, The Sneetches, several years later, and became a theme throughout his, his, uh, his career. Economic commentary, we, we kind of touch on a lot of different areas. This is an artwork that he did that ties into that panel. This is called the Economic Situation Clarified. And when the economy's going up, everybody's happy and the tufts on their necks are fluffed up. And the economy's going down, everybody's hunched over and the tufts are down. He's telling us how ridiculous it is for us to allow the economy to dictate our mood and our happiness as the stock market goes up and down and up and down and up and down. How was his work perceived and accepted, the, the work that, that spoke to social issues, social challenges in our, in our nation? Mm-hmm. How was that accept, perceived? Well, um, it, not well initially. And one example would be the Lorax book about the environment, about protecting the environment. 1971, he came out with this book. You know, the Green Movement hadn't really begun. Silent Spring was written in 1962, so that was the... The, the bell ringer for the environmental movement, but 1971, he's the first person to write this to children and adults, of course. Um, not received well. In fact, another book was written called The Truax. The logging industry in the Northwest wrote a book about the Truax and how the, you know, the, the Lorax, in essence, was just bogus and he was trying to kill the industry and <laughs> lying and there was no such thing as, you know, protecting the environment and it wasn't needed and blah, blah, blah. So it was not well received early on. Um, Sneetches, I think, was a little bit better received, but it's really interesting how it's taken several years for us as a society to catch up to with the concepts and ideas that Ted Geisel had very much uh, a foresight um, when it comes to his work. He could tell that these were big issues and he was um, wise enough to put them down as important issues. We're now catching up to the Lorax as the Green Movement now has an impact uh, that I think Ted would love to see today. It certainly did not have that impact in the 1970s when he wrote the book. And the Sneetches, as you mentioned, the Sneetches I think is a really important book when it comes to teaching tolerance um, and how ridiculous um, uh, discrimination is really that's that's the story of that book and I think that there are many people that are trying to use that book to teach those lessons and who better than Dr. Seuss Bill thank you very much thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio thanks so much for having me we hope you enjoyed our show today and, and as always we look forward to spending quality time with you and to connecting with you during the week on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and our other social networks and we also invite you to sign up for our newsletter and receive our travel deals from worldfootprints.com We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick and we'll see you on the air again next week same time, same frequency and until then we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints when step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved. 
Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. Happy holidays, everybody. This is Dave Koz for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. When you're traveling during the holidays and see someone who's had too much to drink about to get behind the wheel of their car, get the car keys. Your friends will thank you for it because friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council.